Today will be the last in the series on the subject of grieving to the glory of God. And in this series we've had three texts. One might say the primary text is 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, those who have died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Even though that is the primary text sort of supporting this, holding this up, is what we find in 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in Colossians 3, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The foundational principle of this series has been that whatever we do, we are to do it all for the glory of God. And that includes our grieving when we lose a loved one. Pastor Al Martin, who is a pastor in New Jersey uh, for a number of years, uh, after the death of his wife of 48 years, uh, preached a series of sermons on grieving, and then it was published in a book as Grieving Hope and Solace When a Loved One Dies in Christ. Um, This book has really been a very rich resource for me in this series, and I'm grateful for that. Just to review what we've seen in this series, we are made in the image of God. We consist of two parts, that is, body and soul, material and non-material. Physical death is the separation of these two aspects of our being. But this, this separation, this tearing apart, is in fact unnatural. And it is temporary. Uh, Let's be clear about this. We were not made for death. The experience literally tears us apart. It tears us apart in death, where body and soul are torn apart, but emotionally, when a loved one is taken from us. In Scripture, we find that life is marked by self-giving and self-receiving, and death is marked by taking and keeping. Here and now, in this culture, death is seen as the end of all things. It's the end of the story. And when that is the case then taking and keeping becomes the ethic. It is the thing that drives society. And so we become what we are in this society, consumers. We live in a consumer society. And if we live as consumers, even if we are the people of God, our emotional response to the loss of a loved one might in fact be the same as those who see death as the end of all things. We imitate the surrounding culture in our grieving when Paul tells us precisely not to do that, that we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. Um, And so, as a result, I, I fear that sometimes our grieving as God's people may not be done to the glory of God. We are to be marked by communion, not consumerism. We've just had the Lord's Supper. Our life is not sustained by competition and consumption, but by communion. Death is not the end of all things. So, to continue our review, we saw that our thoughts are to be under our control. Our emotions are not to control us or to rule over us. And then we spent about a Sunday and a half looking at the intermediate state, the time between death and when the Lord Jesus will return. That those who die in the Lord, who are in this intermediate state, are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. That is, they are without sin. They no longer will, they will never sin again. They are in the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. They are with the company of God's people who have died. 
and they have entered into the promised rest of Jesus Christ. When God takes away our loved ones, and let's be clear about that, we don't perhaps like to use that language. Uh, we talk about losing someone, the loss of a loved one, um, or the cancer took someone. Um, God is in control. And when someone is taken from us, it is God who has taken this loved one. When this happens, by God's grace and by His Spirit, we are to think about these realities. That they are now no longer, they are without sin, no longer tempted, no longer sinning. They are in the presence of Jesus. They are with God's people and they are in God's rest. We are responsible for how we think. Though we may go a bit crazy at times um, because of the, the death of a loved one, we are responsible for how we think. We are responsible to direct and focus our thoughts, even in the midst of crushing grief. Today, what I want to do in our last sermon on this series is to consider truths we should focus on in the midst of our grieving, so that our grieving will be done to the glory of God. Five things here for us to consider. The first is, we should consider what Jesus has gained rather than what we have lost. When someone dies in the Lord, when a believer dies, they are someone who is united to Christ, they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. When this happens, Jesus receives a partial fulfillment of his purpose and his purchase. Jesus came to give his life to save us. And when someone dies in the Lord, they are now in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That is something for which Jesus, that person is someone for whom Jesus died. And their being in his presence, that is a result of the work that he has done. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, He, for he, God the Father, chose us in him, that is Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. But how is this accomplished? How are we holy and blameless? The scriptures are clear that the Lord Jesus took upon himself the full responsibility of getting this salvation for his people by his obedience in his life and then by his sacrificial death. So later in the same letter in Ephesians, Paul would write, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Paul's come full circle. That in fact God the Father has in fact chosen us in the Lord Jesus that we might be made holy and blameless. And then as Paul speaks of husbands and wives, he says this is seen in Christ in the church whom he gave his life for that he might cleanse her and make her holy and blameless. Jesus as the bridegroom has always had a very clear picture, a marvelous vision of what his purpose was. And that is to cleanse his people, his bride from every bit of sin, every trace of sin and to give to us his nature, the nature of Christ, to make us perfect. So it isn't simply that he washes away our sins, but he then gives us his righteousness. 
As we have seen, when any true child of God dies, that purpose is fulfilled. We are instantly made perfect. The moment that a believer dies, God purges his or her soul from every remnant of sin, thus giving to the Lord Jesus that for which he poured out his life. I hesitate to make any type of analogy, um, but Jesus, in fact, paid the price. And when a loved one dies in the Lord, he is, in fact, getting what he paid for. The Lord Jesus is receiving the soul of that person. That is something for which he gave his life, for which he suffered. The marriage supper of the bride, as recorded in Revelation, must await the resurrection of the bodies. Then and only then will the Lord Jesus get all of what he has paid for, that is, his church that has been made holy and blameless. But I would argue until that time, Jesus is filled with delight. Again, this may be hard for us, but he is filled with delight. He receives with delight the spirits made perfect as a reward for his suffering on their behalf. Because Jesus gave his life. When his people die, he receives the reward of receiving them to himself. We find great comfort as God's people throughout Scripture when we read passages in which we are told that Christ is always with us, that God is always with us. In Matthew 28, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In Isaiah 41, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. What comfort it is to know that we have the presence of the Lord Jesus with us. But I think in many ways we're only thinking of ourselves in a sense. Before his death, resurrection, ascension, the Lord Jesus revealed to his disciples what his desire was. In John 17, we have his high priestly prayer. And toward the end of the prayer, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. We like it when we hear, I am with you to the very end of the age. We like it when we read, for you are with me. But do we ever consider that the Lord Jesus wants his people to be with him? That was his desire, that is his desire. And the way for that, that desire to be fulfilled is when we die in the Lord and are immediately in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says this is far better. It's far better. I would argue that when the Lord takes a loved one from us, we should think more and more frequently about what Jesus has gained by this death than about what we have lost And we should remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we should consider what the Lord Jesus has gained. Secondly, we should consider what our loved ones have gained in Christ rather than what we have lost. And this we've spent a number of Sundays looking at. Um, 
They are fully conformed to the moral likeness of the Lord Jesus. They are perfect. They are without sin. They enjoy the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. They are in the company of God's saints. They have entered into the rest that has been promised by the Lord Jesus. And when the Lord takes away a loved one from us, we should think more and more frequently about what our loved one has gained than what we have lost. And I would argue that in the midst of our grief, if we meditate on these things and dwell on these things, what our loved one has gained, it will strengthen and encourage us, it will lighten our load, and it will make it easier for us to exercise personal discipline so that we may fulfill our duties. You see, as God's people, we don't simply set aside our duties because, oh, we are in the midst of grieving. We have lost a loved one. Um, there are adjustments, obviously, to be made. But I would argue that if we focus on what we have lost, then the burden becomes heavier, not lighter. Whereas if we focus on what they have gained, yes, we still grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And in time, the sorrow will be lessened. The third thing we should consider is the hope that we share with those who have been taken from us. When God takes away a loved one, we must think more and more frequently on the hope we share in common with the one we have lost. What is hope? It is not a wish. It is not a strong desire. In Scripture, hope is a confident expectation and longing for a promise, that is, God has promised us, but has not yet been realized blessing of His grace. This would mean, in part, that when a person dies, and they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus, they're with the company of the saints, this is not the final hope. This is what we've been calling the intermediate state. It is when the Lord Jesus returns and there is the resurrection and both soul and body are glorified. That is the hope that God has promised us in the Lord Jesus. This is what the Lord Jesus has purchased by his death. It is not simply, and we have to be careful here because oftentimes we think of the body as nothing um, that you know, when someone dies, they're in the presence of the Lord, so that's good, end of story. Not at all. The resurrection is something for which Jesus gave his life. And it is something he demonstrated by his resurrection. The glorified body is something we see in the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul says we're waiting. We're waiting for the time in which both soul and body will be glorified. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that is our bodies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. That's the glorified body. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. 
For while we are in this tent, that is this body, we groan and are burdened because that we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And in Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We who are alive have this hope, and so do those who have died in the Lord, who are waiting for the resurrection. As I mentioned earlier in the series, this is strongly hinted at in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. We have the hope that we will be transformed into the glorious body as the Lord Jesus had after his resurrection. Those who have died in the Lord have the same hope. And so while we bid farewell to them, it is temporary we know that they have the same hope that we do. And that is that the Lord Jesus will return. The fourth thing that we should consider in the midst of our grieving is what God intends to do in us and through us as a result of this grief. At the beginning of Second Corinthians, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It's clear that God is the source of all comfort. And yet, as we hear in this passage, God often uses us, he uses his people to mediate or to convey his comfort to his people. He does it through human instruments. And that's what Paul is saying here that God comforts us so that we may comfort others. Paul understood, understood this, and a few verses later it would write, For if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, from which we get our text, Paul tells them, in the context of grieving for those who have died in the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. The best human instruments for mediating God's comfort to those in need are often those who have experienced his comfort themselves. Those who have experienced deep sorrow and grief and have been comforted by God and because of that comfort, they are now able to share that with others. So, we should consider, in a time of deep sorrow, as we grieve, as we seek to grieve to the glory of God, what it is that God intends to do through us, as a result of what he is doing in us. We have lost a loved one. He has taken a loved one from us. 
What is God going to do in us and through us as a result of this? And by God's grace, we may be able to comfort someone else who is walking through the darkness of grieving. And by God's grace, we are able to do this in part because we have gone through the experience ourselves. The last thing that we should consider is what we are gaining precisely because of the loss. You may remember what Paul wrote to the Romans, and I mentioned it earlier in the series. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. As we consider what we are gaining through the loss of a loved one, we need to avoid the notion or tendency to grieve alone or in solitude. And I I have to tell you, I think this would be my inclination. In a time of sorrow, in a time of grief, uh, I want to be alone. Uh, I, I don't want people talking to me. I don't want people... I would even say I don't even want people to try to comfort me. Um, Part of this is because I think people who think they're comforting you do anything but comfort. uh, Particularly when someone says, I know exactly how you feel. Don't you hate that? I mean, when someone says, I know how you feel, they may have experienced loss, but they don't know exactly how I feel. But... As we go through the loss of a loved one, we, cons- we should consider what, in fact, we are gaining. What we are gaining. I said a moment ago that we are to comfort those who are grieving, but what does this involve? We find in the story of Job that upon hearing of the disasters that had fallen him, three of his friends came to comfort him. Let me read to you um, from Job. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Amathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. I see three things in this. First of all, the sharing of grief, the ministry of presence, and then finally, the sacrament of silence. Grieving, presence, and silence. They did as Paul said we are to do. They mourned with one who was mourning. And it wasn't an act. They weren't pretending to grieve. They, in fact, were grieving. They shared his grief, and they grieved for him. When they saw him, they didn't recognize him. And certainly they grieved for what he had lost, but they were grieving for him. And then secondly, they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. They were there for him. This is called the sacrament or the ministry of presence. And then lastly, they were silent because they saw how great his suffering was. The comfort they brought was through sharing his grief being there for him, and being silent in his grieving. In fact, if you know how the story continues, the comforters, and now when we talk of Job's comforters, it's not a pleasant, you know, we're not complimenting them. They get into trouble when they start to talk. They would have been better off just staying there and being quiet. But they grieve, they are present with him, and they are silent. When we lose a loved one, when God takes a loved one from us, we can gain or grow in fellowship with God's people. 
It may be that in the, the emotional trauma of God taking away a loved one from us, that the ministry of fellow believers can really begin to have an impact on our life and rise to new levels. Paul told the Corinthians, if one member suffers, then all suffer together. It doesn't happen automatically, though. By God's grace, we are to come together and we are to seek to comfort one another, not necessarily with words, oftentimes merely with presence. I say merely, but presence and silence. By God's grace, we are to give and receive comfort. But also argue one of the things that is gained when God takes a loved one is that the word of God becomes more alive. That it is possible that as we read scripture, we become familiar with it, that it becomes sort of dry to us and loses a lot of its impact. But when God takes a loved one, I think there is something that happens in our lives and the reality of scripture becomes even more real. That the pressure of grief can make many parts of scripture come to life in ways we have not experienced before. But also argue that when God takes a loved one, our orientation becomes more heavenly. One thinks of losing a spouse. Um, it's normal that one's thoughts go to that spouse who is now gone. But now that one is with the Lord. And so the thinking is more toward heaven, toward where this person is than ourselves, where, where we are right now. Otherwise, we just keep thinking about, I've lost, I've lost, I've lost, and we sink into sort of despair rather than saying, God has taken this loved one and they are now in the presence of the Lord Jesus. I also think that when someone is taken from us, our thoughts, well, we gain a greater sense of mortality. We realize, yeah, we think about it sometimes, but we realize on the death of this person, this is going to happen to me one day, unless the Lord comes back before then. And when that happens, by God's grace, we have, I think, a renewed determination um, to live the way that we should. That perhaps we have slacked off, we are not doing what we should be doing, and now that we realize one day I'm going to have, a give, have to give an account. And it changes to some degree the way we live. Moses wrote in the one psalm that is recorded by Moses, Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Pastor Martin writes this, left to ourselves we become careless in the duty of numbering our days. We so easily drift into living as though we will be here on this earth forever. At the practical level, we become earthbound. Few things more quickly and effectively snap some of the shackles that bind us to the world, to this world, than does the death of a dearly loved one. We recognize, yeah, I'm not going to be here forever, and I need to spend my time wisely. The death of a loved one can cause us to gain a renewed determination to number our days aright. It is a reality that grieving is part of the human experience, whether we are believers or not. The difference between a believer and a non-believer 
is not that we do not grieve. And I, I, was, I remember being told that many years ago when I was in Bible college. Someone told me, you know, when you go to a funeral, you can tell who the Christians are. They're the ones who aren't crying. Um, no, not at all. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, as we are to do all things, to the glory of God. It may seem strange or maybe even nonsensical to argue that in our sorrow we can bring glory to God. But what's the alternative? If we cannot bring glory to God in our, in our sorrow and our grieving, then what are we doing? Um, because it's either glory, honor, or shame. So do we shame God in our grieving? Or do we honor him? Do we bring glory to God in our grieving? If death is the end of all things, then certainly grieving to the glory of God makes no sense at all. But as we've seen, we go from this life to the intermediate state, then resurrection and the eternal state. Death is not the end, and we should not grieve as though it is, though there are times when it feels as though it is. And as I said earlier in the series, I think that it, may well be that in our grieving we sin against God, but God is gracious. God is merciful. He forgives those that sin as he does our other sins. That's not an excuse. Should we just keep sinning that God's grace may abound? And Paul says, God forbid. We should not grieve as though death is the end of all things. In Psalm 30, we read, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. There is a time for grieving, but there's also a time for rejoicing. Later in the same psalm, the psalmist writes, You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. It is my prayer that as God's people here, we would be comforted by God and by one another, and we would comfort one another in a time of grieving, and that in our grieving, we would do it to the glory of God. Because again, as I said, what's the alternative? If we do not grieve to the glory of God, then we grieve to the shame of God. We shame Him by our grieving. We certainly don't want to do that. But we, we are to grieve to the glory of God. Some of us have already experienced this grief. All things being equal, we will grieve again. So my hope in this series is that I have prepared you in some ways. That as you face dark days ahead, you will not grieve as those who have no hope, but will grieve to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, how easy it is in our grief to think only of ourselves and what we have lost. To want to be alone, to cut ourselves off from others. 
to imagine that no one has suffered as we are suffering, that no one knows the pain that we know. How easily we forget that you suffered the loss of your son when he died on the cross. May our thoughts not be self-centered, but may we consider what Jesus has gained, what our loved ones have gained, what we in the process can gain as we seek to comfort one another and be comforted by one another. There is a time for grieving, but there will also be a time for rejoicing. And you are the one who can turn our wailing into dancing and give us joy. Father, it's my prayer that in this series, we as your people in this place have been made better prepared, better informed, that as we face grief and sorrow in the days ahead, it's common to the human experience, it's foolish for us to think we can avoid it, but that we will grieve to your glory. We will bring glory to you even in the midst of our sorrow. I thank you for the things we've learned in this series. May we take them to heart. May the Spirit remind us from time to time of what we've heard. We pray for those that will be traveling, for Tom as he comes back this week, and for others, you would give them safety. And be with Dan and Lonnie there in China as well. Thank you for bringing us to this place today to worship you. May your Spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.